0: Good morning. Good morning. My name is Brent Strobel. I'm one of the pastors here at Evergreen. This morning, our scripture reading is from the book of Matthew. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be me- reading Matthew 1 through 18 from the New American Standard Bible. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez, and Zara by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salma. Salma was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asseh. Asseh was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, and Amon, the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud, and Abihad the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliad. Eliad was the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with a child by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, either you're scratching your head or you're just waking up now. (laughs) It's me, I swear. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. And uh, once a year, I like to wear a suit. Today's that day. Uh, Thank you all for coming here today together. Uh, Good to be with you all. Uh, how many of you have never uh, been uh, sat in on a reading of that passage before? Yeah, it's an experience. Uh, the key to reading all of those names is to just go for it, because nobody else knows how it's supposed to be read. So, And you notice, every time we have one of these passages, I always ask Brent to do the scripture reading. Uh, speaking of Brent, uh, happy birthday, Brent. Uh, <laughs> where is he? It's, uh, it's his birthday today. Uh, before we get into the sermon, uh, as way of my introduction and having a little family matters moment, I want to just acknowledge uh, Kevin and Linda. Uh, Kevin, and, Kevin is the uh, associate pastor here, and he's been here about 18 months. And next Sunday will be his last Sunday, as most of you know. And I wanted to say a few words about him and then ask him to come up, and I wanted to say a prayer for him. Uh, the thing that I really uh, appreciate and uh, have loved Kevin for and recognize now that this is going to be a great loss to us is, uh, to me, Kevin is an incredibly loving person along with Linda. There's a quality that they bring to wherever they go. There's a, a genuineness and a sincere uh, love a real pastoral presence, and I think I'm really, really uh, sad to see that go. And uh, I know that uh, when they go back to New Jersey, that's really going to be the uh, heart of their um, uh, blessing. Uh, Linda, also Kevin's wife, has been uh, been uh, mentoring Susie as her spiritual director since they've been here, and so Susie is really going to miss uh, having Linda here on a very personal. Uh, level, So I want to say thank you and bless you to um, Kevin and Linda. Is Kevin in here? Kevin and Linda, can I ask you guys to come on up? I warned Kevin that I was going to do this. I don't know if he warned Linda that this was going to happen. <laughs> told <her> it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, church, would you, uh, if you are willing, extend your hands out towards Kevin and Linda and uh, allow me to pray for us. For them, God, you have done a great work in Kevin and Linda long before we got to know them, long before we were graced with their presence. You have been uh, forming their character, and you have been working mightily in them and through them. And at this time, we've had an opportunity to uh, be together, and uh, and now you're sending them. Uh, to another place, and just as they were a tremendous blessing to us, I pray that you would uh, empower them and fill them with more anointing, a double anointing to be able to do even greater works uh, through them than uh, they were you were able to do even here. So we pray for them, we love them, we appreciate them, we thank them, and we thank you for them. We send them out. In the strong name of Jesus, trusting you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. you. I wanted to uh, do that today partly because I wanted to use Kevin as uh, an opening uh, sermon illustration Today is the fourth Sunday in Advent, and uh, the Advent season uh, is a a wonderful season because we are directed to focus on what it means that God came to earth. You realize God uh, doesn't have to come and be near His creation. He can be God from afar. He can remain His distance, but yet He chose to come, and He came uh, by taking on human form. By taking on flesh. And that I will not understand on this side of heaven. If I can be an honest Christian about that, that is just wild to me that God would some reason, for some reason, choose to take on human form. It's what theologians call the incarnation. It's the presence of God, God with us. The word Emmanuel means God with us. Why would God do that um, you know over these last 18 months that Kevin has been with us uh, one thing that he's really conveyed to me by uh, his personality and his action uh, is that I just feel for some reason and this this hasn't happened you know all the time but for some reason I have this great confidence that at any moment if I called on him he would drop everything and just come and help me I just have that feeling about him. That's just my sense about him. And some of you probably agree with that. I'm not sure how that gets, uh, you know, um, conveyed. But I feel like, I remember uh, Kevin knocking on our relationship's door and going, Peter, I've been in in your house several times, and I've noticed that your garage is just getting worse every time. Can I help you clean that up? And uh, a couple of weeks later, he did. He spent hours with me just in my garage, clearing everything out and organizing. And uh, I, think, I think he could have been an astronaut because I think he's got this sort of spatial intelligence thing going on. He knew just how everything would fit laterally and this way and this way He just, and, and calculated weight. And it was, it was an amazing um, to see an engineer, a pilot mechanic at work there. Um, and uh, I always have this feeling that if I am ever going anywhere, he would just want to give me a ride. Every time I've had to get on an airplane, he's asked, do you need a ride to the airport? Do you need somebody to pick you up? Always, all the time. In fact, this exchange has happened again uh, last night and this morning among one of the staff who are going away on vacation. Oh, let me know if you need a ride. Just always that way this feeling I have that he dropped everything to help. I think a way to describe this is incarnation. Some of you have experienced this, that Kevin and Linda very quickly in their own way uh, began to incarnate themselves into the community. They became integrated into our life and our customs and our culture, our normal ways of living here, and came alongside, inserted themselves in helpful ways, and ask the question, what can I do? What do you need? What's God doing? And you felt that, yeah? I have felt that. That's, that's a great, great gift that they bring. And a question I have for them, and in this season for God, is why? Why come? Why incarnate? And I want to suggest to you today That that's what love is. That's what love feels like. That's what love looks like. It's the gold standard for what love is. Is when you are able to give the very gift of yourself for the good of the other. It's your attention. It's when your eyes are wide open to their hopes, needs, wants, and dreams, even at the cost of denying your own hopes, wants, needs, and dreams. It's what the scriptures call being a servant. You're literally taking on the flesh of the other person's real needs. You're giving your own body, your flesh, to their needs, to what's good for them. And I think part of why God did what he did by incarnating himself in human form is because that is the highest form of love for us. That is the greatest way. Jesus himself said, there's no other way to show greater love than a man lay down his life for his friends. And that's what he did. His presence was so focused on me, on you, that he literally denied his own life his own self. And, and this way of loving us allows God to get close on a cellular and molecular level. And he, can, he is able to care about us from our perspective. He can care about the things that we care about and do even a better job than we ever can. I was in the hospital a couple of times this week Uh, visiting uh, some of you, and everybody's got stuff going on. I mean, everybody is in their own world with their own stuff, their own sickness, their own disease, their own, you know, mishap in life. If I didn't go, I wouldn't have seen it, and I wouldn't have cared. To think that God is taking on all of our cares and concerns from the big things to the little things from the to the things that only we know about and only we care about to the thing that's obvious to others god cares he comes he is incarnate in your world in other words, God's not afraid to get messy. He's not afraid of creating tension or stepping into the tension. He's not afraid of engaging the process. He's not afraid of taking the time. And I think it's really a lifetime we're talking about for each person. It's the Christmas story: is God with us, incarnate deity? God, God, the uh, the, the deity taking on flesh. So we have two points today. Uh, Get in there and get out there. Okay, get in there and get out there. Okay, first, get in there. Uh, We did read the genealogy from the book of Matthew. It starts with Abraham. There were several generations before Abraham. And if you want to read who comes before Abraham, you'd want to read Luke chapter 3. Okay, that's where the other uh, genealogy is in the New Testament. Uh, Matthew, being the good Jew that he is, he starts with Abraham, and so that's where uh, we start. Okay, Let me highlight a couple of uh, characters for you. Uh, first, Abraham, he's been called the father of faith. But if you know Abraham's story, you know that faith was not a strength of his at all. It was actually one of his great weaknesses Uh, he abandoned his wife twice to save his own skin Um, and she having no choice in the matter because of societal structure stayed with him Uh, when God came to him to give him the promise of all promises Abraham immediately believed him for a second and then proceeded to forget and doubt the entire time afterwards that's true He believed God for a moment, just that moment, and after that, it was all the story of doubt. In fact, he began to uh, sabotage God and try to even uh, participate in uh, fulfilling the promise his own way because he didn't believe that God would do what he said. So Abraham is the father of our faith, not by nature, not by nurture, but by grace. Uh, another character worthy of highlight is Isaac. Isaac uh, was the son that Abraham uh, was tested on and it uh, was put on the altar and Abraham uh, was kept from sacrificing him. I don't know how all of that plays out psychologically, <laughs> but if the world is as real as it is today, and I have every reason to believe the Old Testament is real and very messed up like our world today, uh, Isaac Uh, was deeply traumatized by this uh, because he, throughout his life as a father and husband, uh, was incredibly absent and oblivious. Uh, He sowed seeds of enmity among his sons and wife. The family was completely divided and dysfunctional, uh, and he showed blatant favoritism. I wonder if that's related to his father almost killing him. I don't know. Uh, Another interesting one is Judah and Tamar. Tamar need not have been mentioned, but uh, uh, Matthew mentions him. Judah and Tamar's story is uh, one of those (laughs) Old Testament stories that give God and God's people a really bad name. Uh, It involves deception, brutal power play, politics, outright hypocrisy, prostitution, lust, pain, and grief. It's all of our modern-day SVU episodes combined into one happy, dysfunctional, family. And if you know the story, I'm not exaggerating. Okay, that's true. Uh, another one worthy of mention is Jesse. Uh, he's judged. He, he was so uh, consumeristic a uh, materialistic for some reason that he only valued his children according to their birth order, looks, appearance, and usefulness. Okay, this is true. And when asked directly, by a prophet who visited him about the whereabouts of David, his youngest son, he literally actually forgot that David even existed and said, What are you talking about? I don't have any more children. But he did. He still had David. And, and Samuel confronts him again about David and he says, Oh, oh yeah, actually, I guess I do have one more. What do you think that did that to David? What, what did that do to David? Right? David, as many of you know, uh, already know, is the single most beloved king of Israel and maybe the most beloved character of all time in the Scriptures. Uh, He wrote many prayers and songs and poems, laments and history. Uh, it, It is he, David, who came to symbolize the coming of the Messiah. Right? It was David the king, but a greater king will come because David was named the man after God's own heart. But as we know, he was also probably bipolar, at least a manic depressive. He was a murderer. He was an adulterer. And he was completely self-focused all the time. This is David. Uh, And uh, he had a son. Uh, by Bathsheba, the scriptures mentioned here. Bathsheba was the wife of David, King David's most loyal soldier, whom David ordered murdered in cold calculation to cover up his own uh, uh, adulterous affair that he had with Bathsheba. Uh, And then he has Solomon, a son, who turns out to be the most adulterous king in all of Israel's history. And it turns out we learn that wisdom and moral virtue are independent operators. From that, we move through betrayal, more incest, rape, murder, hate, until we come to one final scandal. The Son of God, supposedly conceived by the Holy Spirit, into the womb of a lowly Jewish teenager, out of wedlock, into shame, into scorn, and into scandal, She's powerless, helpless, completely vulnerable to society and the powers that be. And she lives amongst a people who would persecute her, who themselves are persecuted, powerless, and oppressed. Hashtag, do Jewish lives matter? Why all this scandal? Why do we take time to read this genealogy today, why am I going through these characters? Because you need to know that when God comes, God is not staying clear of the things that are messed up. God is not ashamed to be called our God. You realize, you know, if I were to write the script for how the Messiah was going to come and all I had was, okay, God is going to become a man and he's going to come to earth and he's going to save the earth. If, if that was my only directive and I had to write the script, I would not have God come through these loser characters. Why take the risk of being descended from these clearly very human people? And why would Matthew, if he were to write out the genealogy of the Messiah, why would he bother to unnecessarily include details like Tamar, Bathsheba? Why? Why would the author do that except that it's true? Unless Matthew was writing a true story, unless there was a commitment other than plausibility, Because now this is less believable, but if you think about it, it's actually more. It lends more credibility and validity to the story when you write in details, when you include details that actually don't help what you're trying to say, that the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, came to earth. Oh, how did he come? Oh, you're not going to believe this. Why is this so important? Can I be vulnerable? I've been on a truth-telling kick lately, actually. Um, the question I have is, why does the sacred, why doesn't the sacred just stay clear of the profane? Why take on flesh? Why incarnation? And the vulnerable thing uh, that I think I've shared before is uh, I'm a pretty analytical person, and I think uh, a lot. I live in my head. And I deconstruct myself all the time. And I've come to the conclusion again this week that the bottom line issue for me, personal issue for me, if I can name it for you, is a deep-seated fear of abandonment. That's kind of what it comes down to for me. Somehow, all of the issues I have, they are uh, built on top of this uh, major issue, a fear of being left And it comes out in every which way possible if I think about it. I fear that those who love me will leave me either physically or emotionally or even in thought. You know, Kevin's leaving, he resigned. And one of the things I have to be aware of in myself is I'm dealing with abandonment. What did I do wrong? Could Kevin have stayed? I'm thinking about that. I have to process that. That's what it means to be me. I bought uh, some equipment these days because I've been getting more and more into coffee. Thank you, Seattle Culture. And uh, two weeks ago, I decided to start roasting my own coffee beans. So I've been diving just headfirst into the world of coffee roasting. And I'm, I'm using this roaster, and it's expensive. And the reviews are out there saying, you know, it, it can break because there's so much, uh, they're moving parts, and there's heat involved. And so, uh, you know, I'm already on my second machine. I already broke the first one. <laughs> and my fear of abandonment kicks in. It's like this machine is going to leave me. I look at the second roaster, and I'm thinking, at tu, Brute Because in my world of fear of abandonment, things are just breaking all the time. Like, I just know my kitchen sink is going to clog. And the wood outside, as it rains in the wintertime, it's rotting away. And my roaster is going to break. And my new espresso machine, I don't know how long the pump is going to last. And I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm an extreme case. I don't think so. I've talked to too many of you to know you're way worse than me, some of you. (laughs) I think the laughter is nervous laughter. (laughs) For me, this is what it means to be human. And for God to say, Peter, the fact that you struggle with this only communicates to me how much underneath that fear of abandonment you long for somebody who will never leave. Somebody will even die for you. I'm not afraid of your fears. I'm not afraid of what you bring to the table into this relationship. I'm going to stay. I'm not going anywhere, Peter. I'm going to work not in spite of you or not around you, but I'm going to work in you and through you. God, how can I know you will do that? Well, just read Matthew chapter 1. What a mess of a story. What a mess. And look what I look have what brought through those stories. I have given birth to my son. That's how you know, Peter, that Jesus, the Son of God, Messiah, Savior of the world, is not only going to come and be born, but he is going to stay through all the way to the cross, to the other side of the cross, and then he's going to cleanse you of all of your sin and give you the deposit of the holy spirit so that you can know I'm coming back. It's a deposit of things to come. I don't know, it sounds it sounds like a story, but it also sounds like a story that resonates true for me. Because I need that in my heart. I know roasting equipment will break but the love of God won't. That may have been the first time in history that the love of God has been compared to a coffee bean roaster. (laughs) Some implications and application uh, of this. Uh, bader Mainhoff phenomenon. Anybody know what that is? Uh, sometimes it's called a frequency illusion. And I had read about this years ago. I had to look it up again. But here's what it is. It's sudden and frequent awareness of something you were previously unaware of. So for example, uh, in 2006, I bought a green Honda Odyssey minivan because we had our third child, right? And guess what? Prior to that, I never noticed minivans. And then after that, Honda Odysseys were suddenly... Everywhere, you know that phenomenon. Have you experienced that? Right? Uh, I've been cutting my girl's hair. I've spent hours learning how to do long layers on women's hair. And Susie has now even to—I've gotten good enough that she let me layer her hair. Isn't that amazing? But guess what? Now when I see women, all I notice is how well their hair is layered. It's amazing. I was at a cafe this week, and I think she thought I was checking her out. I was. I was checking out the layering on her hair, and it was done poorly, and I so wanted to (laughs) fix it. That's called the bader Mainhoff phenomenon. Sudden and frequent awareness of something you were previously unaware of. That, my friend, is what happens when you enter into a world that was previously unfamiliar to you. As you start walking a step or two in other people's shoes, you begin to have your eyes opened to their life, to their reality. And previous, prior to you walking in their steps, you cannot know what it's like to be them. Let me apply this, uh, really uh, bring it home here. Our church, one of our stated uh, mission statements, is to be an intergenerational church. I don't know what it's like to have 50, 60 years of faith practice under my belt. And come to church week after week after week and be told either explicitly or implicitly that all of that faith tradition that I bring is not relevant to the future of this church. I have no idea how much that hurts. Because I'm still a young, good-looking guy. I don't know (laughs) what it's like. I don't know. So intergenerationality is very difficult. What is it like to be a woman? I have no idea. Last week, Julie preached about Mary being with child and all of this, like, with child stuff. How many pairs of female eyeballs would have been rolling if I was talking about being with child? (laughs) Because I'm a guy. I have no right, and I should never talk about what it's like to be with child. That'd be ridiculous. Because I don't know the plight of the female gender. This world, this historic misogyny that they're birthed into, I'm more aware of it now because I'm always looking at the world, trying to look at it through my four daughters' eyes. And it's a tough world out there. I'm scared for them. You know, I I read this week that women have this unspoken code. And the code is we will always be there for each other and help each other if we can. Because they share suffering together as the female race. They do. They just get it in a way that men don't do because men have been in powers of position and privilege ever since we threw Eve under the bus. It's true. We don't know what it's like to be an African-American male if we're not an African-American male. We have no idea what it's like to walk this earth. We don't know what it's like to be an African-American mom and to look her son in the eyes and the things you want to tell him about the world. We don't know what that's like. We don't know what it's like to be a police officer in our climate these days if we're not police officers, too Brooklyn cops, one Hispanic, one Asian, executed in response to what's happening in New York. We don't know what it's like to walk the streets as a police officer and the constant adrenaline that's flowing. Unless we step into other people's shoes, we cannot know. And here's a testimony of Scripture. Jesus was tempted in every way that we are. He has experienced every trial that we will ever experience or have ever experienced because he came in the flesh. He is our God and he's earned the right to be called our God. And Philippians 2 says because of this act of humility, he will be exalted because he's now worthy to be worshiped. He has won us over. He has walked in our shoes. And so here is the first application. Get in there. Before you have a thought, before you pass judgment, get in there. I read one of my kids' diary entries last week. She let me. And there was an entry about how adults just don't understand. And she was complaining that adults don't understand that kids have homework from school and how we need to stop assigning extra piano practice and math problems at home because they already have homework to do. Clearly, they are Asian kids if they're practicing piano, doing extra math. Uh, and real briefly here, uh, get out there. What the genealogy teaches us uh, also is that God not only is taking on flesh and walking in our shoes to win the right to be worshipped, but he is also uh, conveying a message of integration. You know what I mean by integration? Integration. It's central to the Christian message. He came to the apostle Peter, and he gave Peter a dream, and he said to Peter, Look at all this food that you've never eaten before. As a Jew, this is Gentile's food, but I want you to eat it. It's all clean now. It's all good. And then he told Paul, A well versed Jew, trained to be a Jew among Jews, he said to Paul, Your mission in life now is to reach the Gentiles. Not only am I saving Jews, I am saving the Gentiles. And in Jesus coming through the genealogy that we read today, What God is saying is, it's not just about God coming into our world, but it's also God embracing our whole world. And he's no longer bifurcating between the sacred and the profane. That means that my job as a pastor is not one moment more sacred than your job in your secular world. If you are a teacher or a leader or a manager or a custodian, it doesn't matter. If you are a mom and you work primarily at home, that is sacred to you and to God. It also means that our culture isn't lost. I think it's very easy for spiritual people, religious people, to judge the culture and to say, you don't know the truth. You're living amoral lives. You're thinking wrong thoughts. Therefore, I judge you and I will abandon you i withdraw myself from participation in the ways that you live and christmas says no we are supposed to embrace the culture be in the culture love the culture pray for the well-being of the culture not only get in there but get out there christmas is saying you go be the very help that you claim quote-unquote they need now, I got I to gotta confess again in my honest kick, this is a very valid criticism of me. I think one of the gifts that I bring to the table as a leader is that I have a critical eye. I can come into a situation, do a thin slicing, and know what's wrong with an organization or what's wrong with a certain type of leadership. I can do that, especially if I'm not in it yet. I have almost 20-20 vision about what's wrong. And then one of my apparent favorite things to do is to pass judgment and then walk away. And it can leave people feeling hurt and abandoned. I wonder on a psychological level if it's not related to my own fears of abandonment. I wonder if it's not me preemptively abandoning. I don't know. But this is the human thing. This is the easier thing to do, is to pass judgment and then walk away. But what Christmas does is it sees the truth for what it is. It names darkness as darkness, but then steps into the darkness, seeing value in the redemptive possibility of the darkness says, if I claim that you are dark and you need the light, I will get in there and I will help be the light. I will let my light shine in the darkness. It's not passing judgment and then abandonment, but it's full embrace. It's integration between the sacred and the profane you realize if God decided to cut out all things that were worthy of judgment, there would be no genealogy. There would be no Messiah as we know the Messiah today. Uh, I want to give you a sort of homework for this next week as you uh, engage in Christmas activities with family and friends. I don't know what you're doing But I want to just uh, make it really practical. Here's what Christmas is. I want to invite you to incarnate and be Emmanuel with those around you. To put away your devices and your phones, to be attentive to those you are in the room with. Open your eyes, ask questions, and listen to their answers. To really see them, to accept them, and love them. Seek to care about them rather than passing judgment. You know, if you run into that crazy uncle again, instead of avoiding him, what would it look like if you stepped even closer towards somebody this week? So that's my homework for you all this Christmas. Step in, enter in, get in there, get out there and love someone this week. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you this Christmas season and this fourth Sunday of Advent uh, for coming, for stepping into our world, taking on our flesh and identifying with us and embracing us. For not judging and abandoning us, but for really loving us just as we are. God, we love you this Christmas season because you have first loved us, and I pray that for every single person in our church, you would help us to be truly present with those you have given to us in our lives. And as we make time uh, for the least among us, help us to see them too and understand from where they come. In Jesus' name we pray,
0: amen. Amen.